feet of the cross and you've provided that grace. Please give us your grace now as we continue to seek to worship you now by listening to your word. Light our sin-darkened hearts and minds that we may see and behold you and be moved to obey you more fully. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me, please, in the Word of God to Mark chapter 4. A very famous story, one that follows um, a long, hard day. Our Lord God, being fully man as well as fully God, is tired. He's worn out. He falls asleep in the midst of this incredible event. This is the word of God in Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Over the centuries, the church of our Savior has used many different symbols to represent itself and, and who we are, who we identify with. Uh, for example, the, the fish is one that has made a comeback over the past 30 or 40 years. The, the fish that we see on the back of some of our automobiles uh, that stands for the, the first, if you spell the word out, uh, it stands for the, it's an acronym. Uh, the Greek word and the letters, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, spell out the Greek word fish. And it's all in Greek, of course. But that fish, it's very meaningful then. It, it is something that's who we identify with, the person that we uh, call our Savior and Lord, God's Son, Savior. And the church has used other symbols, though, as well. And there's one that I haven't seen very much lately, but I think maybe ought to make a comeback. It's something that you find as you, as you look at the ancient art of the church. You see it in stained glass windows. You see it painted in, in frescoes and in, in various places. And that is 
the, sh- the church represented as a ship on a very rough sea. A ship on the sea is the church, the people of God. And that, that symbol, of course, reflects this passage that I just read in Mark, that is that the, the, three of the, the three of the four gospel writers also tell. It's this story of a day that is filled with busyness, with preaching, with our Savior teaching through parables. The very, very famous parable of the sower. The Lord, at least for the first time, apparently teaches the crowds gathered on this day and many several other very important parables. And he's taken the twelve aside and he's taught them during this day what these parables mean. And now they come to the end of this long and tiring day. And the Lord says to them in a very apparently ordinary way, uh, let's go to the other side of the lake. So. They all get in the boat and they start off for the other side of the lake. Very ordinary request. Uh, it is a command in a sense. I mean, they did what he told them to do, but it's not like the Ten Commandments or anything. But it is, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And the, and the many of the twelve, of course, being fishermen, no big deal. Sure. We'll get in the boat, go to the other side. Not a problem. Of course, what begins so unspectacularly and so routinely, very quickly, apparently, becomes spectacular indeed. In other words, something happens here that's very profound and important and that we need to listen to. They learned the disciples in the boat, learned about themselves in a way that they didn't know before. And they learned about the Lord in ways that they hadn't known before. Because in the midst of this affliction, in the midst of this tribulation on the lake, as they as they faced death, and they knew they were facing death, as they faced death, they learned that Jesus lovingly gave them what they needed. And that he would give them what they needed to live for him through all of their lives. They gained a confidence in him rather than continuing in this false confidence in, their, in themselves and their own ability. And in the midst of us all, the Lord Jesus took them and changed them into the men he wanted them to be and knew they needed to be in order to continue to follow him in the boat that he called them to follow. In the midst of it, they learned the courage to obey him. Now, as they began this trip across the lake, they already had a great deal of knowledge. If you're taking notes, this is point one. I'm a, this is a four-pointer, so stay tuned. This helps me. Okay. As they begin across the lake, they took with them already a knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I mean, they had they, they knew this guy. They had spent time with him and he had taught them. And not only had he taught them about themselves, but they had heard other people say things about him. Look at the Mark chapter one. Verse seven. 
This is John the Baptist speaking. And, and, and John preached and saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Many of these twelve had been following John. They heard this and they were absorbing this and they knew it. And as they spent time with the Savior, they continued to learn all that John meant by this prediction that was predicted by Malachi that is now in John's mouth and that now is true, they're finding in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. They heard that. They knew that. Look at verse 14. Same chapter. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's pointing to himself, obviously. What an incredible claim he's making here. The kingdom of God has come in me. Repent when I call upon you to. My words have authority. It's important for you. They knew all that about Jesus. And they'd heard some other things, too. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. That's not what I wanted. You know the story of the guy, the paralytic, lowered down through the ceiling, where the Lord, uh, the, the man's paralyzed, and, and his friends get him into the crowd by lowering him through the ceiling on a on a a, a pallet on a stretcher. And he comes down, and he's before the Lord, and the Lord has pity on him. And he says, "Your sins are forgiven." And all, of course, all of the Lord's enemies are going, wait a minute, time out. This, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus at that point says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? To show you who I am, get up and walk. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. But it's easy for anybody to say it. And they were just amazed. They were taken aback at the authority of the Lord at that point. Because this man gets up and walks. His authority to forgive sins is from God himself. And they knew that as they got in the boat. They had heard it. They would thought about it. They would wrestled with it. They would talked to him. Surely they would talked to him about it as they spent time together as friends. And they'd heard the opposite about the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. And, and, and this one's kind of amazing. I don't think Mary was here, but the rest of his family was. Then Jesus went home. He, Jesus. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. I'm sure they talked that one over to the Lord, too. They're saying you're crazy. Look at verse 22 of the same chapter. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, 
he cast out demons. Some say he's crazy. Some say he's demon-possessed. He says, and John says, and we see with our eyes that he's the eternal Son of God. All of these things were in their minds and their hearts as they got into this boat. They probably were thinking more about getting the sail up or getting the oars out at this point. But they knew all of this. And it's important for us to know in the way that he knew. I mean, it, 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 theoretically, hypothetically, if, if they were standing on the shore that day and, and you or I had come up to the twelve and said, hey, do you trust this guy, this Jesus? And they would have immediately said, of course. He's demonstrated the truth of his words by the work that he's done, by the power that he's shown. His authority can be only from God. Yet notice how quickly they stopped trusting him. How quickly as they get into the midst of the storm, they stop trusting him. Now, the Lord took this knowledge that they had. And he built on it in the midst of the storm. So it's very, very important to have this knowledge like the twelve. We, too, need to learn more about Jesus. We really must know him as we live our lives for him. And I think the challenge for us is to seek Him daily. Even as they spent time with Him, so we must spend time with Him. This time in His Word, of course. I don't know how recently you've read one of the Gospels. Let me urge you to do that over and over again. Because there, the person of Jesus really comes plain. He, he really emerges from those pages in wonderful ways. And then we read the letters and we read the rest of the Scripture and we find that Jesus is all through the Scripture. But that's how we do it. We need that knowledge, that basis for the trust that we must have in Him as we get into the boat seeking to obey and love and serve and honor Him in all of our lives. So what went wrong in the midst of the boat? What happened to that trust? Second point. In the midst of the storm, they learned the humility that affliction causes. Affliction and trouble humble us. You see, their confidence in themselves, their confidence in the Lord himself abandoned them. It was forced out by this overwhelming fear of the storm. You see, they knew the lake. This is another part of their knowledge base. They knew lakes and they knew boats. They were fishermen. They'd spent basically all their lives on this large lake in Palestine. And therefore, they were, on the one hand, confident in their ability to get the other side. Yet when the storm comes along, they recognized it for what it was. Their friends, perhaps some of their family, had drowned on this lake. They knew that these waves that were breaking over this open boat that was filling up the boat, these waves, this water was going to swamp them and they were going to go to the bottom. It was just that straightforward and they knew it. And so they're bailing like mad as these waves are breaking over them. 
and they're wet and they're miserable and they're panicked. And the adrenaline is flowing and they're getting tired. And all of this forces out their trust in Jesus from their minds. All that they knew abandons them in the midst of this fear of death. Yeah, they were confident in their master, but wait a minute. Hold on. This is the real deal. We're going to die. Look at verse 38 of chapter 4. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Did they really need to ask him that question? Do you care about us? They knew he did. But what he was doing seemed to their way of thinking out of out of line with that love that he professed for them. If he loved them, how could he let them go through what they were going through? Didn't Jesus have great things in mind for them and great things for his kingdom? And wasn't this all just getting started? What's going on, Lord? You're going to let us die in the midst of this. In other words, as Jesus brought them into the storm, he used it to show them their weakness, to humble them, to, to demonstrate graph, graphically is not enough of a word, is it? To, to, to demonstrate clearly and unequivocally to them where they were spiritually. In other words, the great physician of souls took their souls and diagnosed where they were weak and showed them how they needed to trust him. And as he took them, took men and showed them that they were not truly resting in him, men who perhaps the thought ran through their mind and they were attempted to agree with Jesus' family that this guy's out of his mind. But they didn't. And in their anger and their impatience with his plan for them, they lost their confidence because they were proud men. He pointed out their weakness, which at its root is pride. A pride that they knew what God was doing. A pride that that I know God's ways, a pride that says, I know as well as God what needs to happen. I mean, I can make choices to raise the sail and sail across the boat. But it was pride that led to sinful fear. Yeah, we're following Jesus. We're with him. We got it made. And I hope I'm not reading too much into their thinking. I don't think I am. Because they were humbled at this point. Jesus brought them down and showed them that their souls did not trust him as they ought to trust him. They learn the error that they are not in ultimate control of their own lives. And they learn that getting into the boat, being one of his followers, is dangerous. 
and in fact, must be humbling. The great physician of souls said to them in verse 39, why are you so afraid? Now, after he calms the storm, he doesn't criticize them for their harsh words to him. It's like they were saying, you fool, what have you gotten us into? He doesn't criticize them for that. Instead, he goes right to the heart. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so timid in your service to me? When Jesus says, peace, be still to the winds and the waves. The wind stops. And the waves stop. Now, if you know the sea or if you know large lakes, you know that the wind can stop. But those waves always keep going for a while. They don't just flatten out like they did here. The waves were calm, too. And they say, who is this man? That even the winds and the waves obey him. They not only had this knowledge of Jesus. They not only were humbled and learned of themselves in this affliction and of their need for more of him. But they also learned thirdly, then the greatness of Christ. These men were students of the scripture. They knew their Bibles. Look at Psalm 107. I think as you read this, if they didn't have this already in their minds, the next time they read it, they did. Psalm 107, I'm going to be beginning reading the Word of God here at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea, up, lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. Only God stills lakes. The word Lord in this psalm is the uppercase L-O-R-D. The sacred name of the Lord God of heaven and earth. And if, as, as they ask this question, surely they are asking, wait a minute, the Scripture teaches me that God Himself is the one who's in charge of the wind and the waves. See the great power of the Lord Jesus. 
And see also, as the psalmist says, his steadfast love for the sons of men, for the children of men. His steadfast love for them. His strength exercised on their behalf. His power there in the boat for them, his friends. He confronted their soul's weakness, this pride and this lack of trust, because he loved them. He put them through this because he was holding them firmly in his grip. Because he was in charge, he did this for them. Because he knew that he had things for them to do. And that they would need this kind of knowledge of him. Not just hearing his teaching, not just debating with his enemies, but knowing his power personally in each one of their lives, that he really would take care of them. He loved them enough to do what was best for them. In his power and his love, he had the big picture. Think of Peter. Okay, we all know the very famous story of Peter's denial of the Lord on the night of his trial. Peter, who denied him three times when he said he would never deny him. Peter, who lost his trust in Jesus yet again. Surely part of Peter's weeping was remembering the boat. Surely part of Peter's regret in letting the Savior down was remembering how the Savior had protected and cared for him. And now the Lord is building him up again and saying, okay, now you got it. Let's go on and do that which needs to be done. Well, what about us? I don't know about you, but the applications are flying all over my brain. Because that's who we are as well. Junior high. Clay said I'm a, I was a junior high teacher. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one of my seventh graders came in to me one morning before class started. He said, Mr. Upchurch, do you have any brothers and sisters? Junior high kids are great. They just ask you stuff. He said, Mr. Upchurch, uh, do you have any brothers and sisters? I said, yeah, I've got one sister. She's about ten years younger than, than me. He said, ah, that explains it. <laughs> that explains why you're so controlling. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, I don't know how good his psychology is, but he sure spotted me coming down the street, right? You know, teachers, we tend to be that way <laughs> anyway. But, but you know, we as, as, as people, we want to control things. We think we know what's best, that things will work out if we just do it that way. Lord, come on. That's the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam is, you know, if you eat this fruit, you'll know as much as God knows. And you'll, in a sense, I think Adam was looking to be in charge at that point. He and Eve, both, as they do this. We are indeed a society of button pushers, and we need to be aware of that in our lives. We just push buttons and find solutions. We're in charge. I mean, I get this great toaster oven. And I turn that dial right to the right of medium, put the bread in, mash the button, 
and it comes out medium toast every time. It's great. It really works. And these guys got in this boat, raised the sails, head across the lake just like they always did. And it didn't come out that way. I think that if my, I only push the right buttons, do the right things, my kids will be safe and successful and love the Lord. If I just do the right things, my marriage will be happy and content. My aging parents will get it figured out. And everything will be fine. We've just got to do the right things. My career will be successful if I just follow this path. My health will be fine. Three to five servings of fruits and vegetables. Moderate exercise. And everything will be fine. But because He loves us, because He cares about us, because we are His people, when we get in the boat of obedience as His people, the church, He's already guaranteed it's not going to be a smooth trip. In John 16, He says, In this world you will have tribulation. But be of good courage. I've overcome the world. Put your trust where it belongs. He's in the boat. He's in charge of the wind and the waves as He so clearly demonstrated. And we're in the boat, this boat on the sea, because He loves us. They had this knowledge. They were humbled in their affliction. They saw the power and love of the Lord Jesus for them. And then they realized they had work to do because of it all. They had to get that boat to the shore. Now, I hadn't thought about this until recently. That boat was full of water. You know, again, this is fun to imagine what was going through their minds. The boat's full of water. We've got to get to the other shore. And the wind's not blowing. <laughs> okay? Well, they, for sure, they kept bailing. They bailed the boat. They got as much of the water out as they could. And didn't they, did they at that point ask the Lord for a little more wind? I wonder. They either did that or they got out their oars and rowed. But we know they got to the other shore because God had something for, for them to do there. We've seen in the book of Acts, as our pastor has preached through it, that the church accomplished things because they were scattered and persecuted and afflicted and troubled and forced to move out to the people God called them to serve. Carrying the gospel with them, speaking it, living it, loving the Lord Jesus to, the, to his glory, showing his mercy to the salvation of souls. We see in the book of Acts an illustration really of the parable of the sower that the Lord has just told in the verses before the trip across the lake. How some of these people, the troubles and the afflictions will drive out the Word of God. But 
those who obey the Lord, those who love Him, those who continue to seek after Him in obedience to the Gospel, find Him true and find the fruit that He gives 20-fold, 30, 60, 100-fold. In affliction and in troubles, even as we do these things, we find Him great and faithful and loving as we obey Him. No, one of the messages of Acts is to go get involved in people's lives. Which is frankly a frightening thing to do a lot of times. Because people are scary. We don't know their reactions. We don't know what we're getting ourselves into. We think we do, but we don't really. We have the same pride problem that the disciples had when they were in the boat. Yet God has commanded us to love our enemies. He's commanded us to love as He did, to show His mercy and tenderness and to witness to His Gospel and His truth to the salvation of souls, to the glory of God and the mercy we show people. And to obey Him, it takes courage. You know, it it takes courage to discipline children. It takes courage to say, I think I know what's best for them, and therefore I act on it, trusting God with it. It takes courage to trust God with our marriages. That indeed this person I've promised to love and honor is one to whom I can trust God and with whom I can trust God in the midst of all our trials and difficulties and troubles. That this is what He has for me. And it's difficult to trust God at times with our careers and our jobs. To say, wait a minute, I can't do it that way because I love the Lord Jesus. Or I have to take a stand at this point. Or I have to take, put my trust in God and taking a chance that I have to leave this job at times and go somewhere else trusting that He will provide. And it takes courage even with our health to trust that God knows what He's doing with that. Especially when it's bad. Especially when we near death. Or our friends near death. But God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus who came in the flesh is in the boat with us. And that's our comfort in His steadfast love for us. That just like that storm was because He loved them, so our afflictions are because He loves us. One old writer said, and there's going to come a day when we will thank God for those afflictions. I'm not there yet. Some of them. But not all of them. But that's where we ought to be, isn't it? Because He is the Lord. It's only in the boat that they and we learn our own weaknesses and our pride and our lack of trust, our sin-sick souls, as the hymn puts it. It's only in the boat that we learn the greatness of His power and love for us. 
It's only in the boat that we learn the wonder of his tender care. Expressed, of course, ultimately in the cross. Could anyone who did that for his people ever abandon us? Could one who went to the cross and suffered and died ever leave us without hope? Who is this? Was their question. And it needs to be ours every day. Who is this? It is Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, for all who put their trust in Him. May He give us courage to obey Him and to honor Him in all of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in awe of your power and of the wonder of your loving kindness to us who are such sinners. We confess to you our weakness, our timidity, our fear. Please help us. Please strengthen us to trust that you are always on guard on our behalf and that nothing that happens is without your tender hand. We thank you even as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The response this morning is, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And all of God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.